Part 4, Chapter 19 of The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 4, Chapter 19 Almost at the same hour that Clodagh sat down to play cards with Lawrence Ashton at Oristown, Nance was seated with Daisy Escoit in the lounge of the Carlton. After her sister's departure, Mrs. Escoit had borne her off to be her guest at the hotel, and now, the little party of four, having dined in the restaurant, she had gone to her room to discuss a business letter with her son, leaving the two girls ensconced under one of the big palm-trees. It was very pleasant and interesting to sit there, and watch the groups seated on the low couches beside the little coffee-tables, or to study the throng of people that moved constantly through the large glass doors of the vestibule, and up the flight of the shadow steps to the restaurant itself, with its shaded lights and pretty artificial garden. The crowd was unusually large for the time of year. The band was playing a waltz. The whole atmosphere seemed gay and happy to one who only that morning had performed a great act of love. "'How lovely life is, Daisy,' Nance said suddenly, unconsciously echoing Clodagh's words on the day of Gore's return to London. Daisy Escoit laughed. "'Of course it is, with a trousseau like yours. But look over there, by the big palm.' Nance had bent to rearrange some roses in her belt. "'Where? What?' she said, glancing up. "'Don't you see?' "'No. What?' "'Some older girl. He just rushed through and into the restaurant. He seems in tremendous haste.' "'Walter, where?' Nance looked round eagerly. "'I've just told you, in the restaurant. But here he is back again. He must have been looking for someone.' Nance rose from the quiet corner in which they were sitting, and stepped forward to greet Gore. But as he came towards her down the flight of shadow steps, her smile of welcome died, and a look of surprise and concern crossed her eyes. "'Walter,' she said softly. He looked round at the sound of his name. "'Oh, Nance,' he said. His manner was as quiet as usual, but he looked like a man who has undergone some great fatigue and has not yet found time to rest. They shook hands in silence, Nancy's dark blue eyes scanning his face. "'Have you heard from Clo?' she said at last. "'I have. Such a dear letter, written in the train.' He flushed. "'Yes,' he said laconically. "'I have heard. But I can't wait to talk about the letter now. I only came here hoping to find a man I know.' They told me at his rooms that he was dining here, but it was evidently a mistake. I must say good-night. He held out his hand, and Nance took it mechanically. But as their fingers fell apart, she stepped forward and walked with him resolutely across the lounge. In the vestibule she paused, and compelled him to meet her eyes. Walter, she said, something is wrong. Gore's face hardened. Nothing is wrong. She tightened her fingers round the fan she was carrying. "'That is untrue, Walter.' Something in the entire candour of the words touched him. He looked at her with new eyes. "'You're right,' he said quietly. "'It was untrue.' "'Then something has happened? Something about Claw?' "'Yes. Something—something that will break our engagement.' Nance turned very pale. "'Walter,' she said faintly, after a moment's pause. Then before he could speak again she looked up at him. "'Wait for a minute.' she said sharply. "'Wait for a minute!' And turning, she hurried back to where Daisy Escoit was still sitting. "'Daisy,' she said, "'tell Pierce that I've gone out with Walter, and that I'll be back in half an hour. Tell him that it's something most—most important.' She spoke hastily, and without waiting to see the effect of her words, 
turned again and threaded her way between the groups of people back to where Gore was standing. "'Call a cab, Walter,' she said. "'We must talk.' "'But, Nance, a hansom, please?' She turned without embarrassment to one of the attendants. "'But, Nance, you cannot refuse me, Walter. Claw is everything in the world to me.' The jingle of harness sounded as the hansom drew up, and walking deliberately forward she got into the vehicle. "'Tell him to drive anywhere that will take half an hour,' she said to Gore, as he reluctantly followed. "'Out Holland Parkway,' he said, pausing on the step. "'I'll tell you when to stop.' He took his seat and closed the doors of the cab. "'Won't you be cold without a wrap?' Nance ignored the question. "'Now,' she said, "'what is it? Is it about Deerhurst?' At the sudden onslaught, Gore started, and turning round, looked at her. "'I don't intend to discuss this matter,' he said in his coldest voice. "'But I mean to discuss it.' She met his glance with a resolution that was not to be denied. "'Is it about Deerhurst?' "'If you wish to know, it is about Deerhurst.' In his voice there was all the reserve, all the coldness of the Englishman who has been very sorely wounded. "'And what about him?' Quite suddenly Gore's reserve flamed to anger. "'Do you think I am going to talk of such things with a child like you?' Nance clasped her hands on the closed doors of the cab, formulating a sudden prayer that help might be vouchsafed her. Then she spoke, with eyes fixed steadily in front of her. "'I am not a child, Walter,' she said in a very low voice, "'and you must speak to me, for Claude's sake. "'And if you won't, then I must tell you that I know all about her staying away from the theatre the other night, "'about her having no headache but wanting to see Deerhurst.' about her going to Carlton House Terrace at nine o'clock. I know it all, because she told me. Gore drew a quick, amazed breath. She told you? She nodded. Her throat felt very dry. Clodagh told you that? Yes. Who told you? He made no answer. Walter, was it Lady Frances Hope? What does that matter? It was Lady Frances? He put his hand wearily over his eyes. If you wish to know, it was. I guess so. I always hated her. The other day, as we drove from Paddington after seeing Claude Roff, we passed her in the park with Valatone Serico. He must have seen, or guessed, or heard from Deerhurst, and told her. He is an enemy of Claude's, too, since the time at Tufnell. Oh, Walter, she turned suddenly and looked at him. Walter, have you ever really known Clauder? The pain and question in her voice broke through his wounded self-esteem. "'Clodagh has made a fool of me, Nance,' he said harshly. "'She has never been straight with me, never from the very first. "'And you know why?' "'No, I can't pretend that I know why.' His tone was very bitter. "'Because she cares too much. She idealises too much.' Gore made a sound that might have been meant for a laugh. "'I think it is I who have idealised.' Nance straightened her small figure. "'Then you have always treated her wrongly. What Claw needs is not to be idolised, but to be taken care of. Not to be praised or blamed, but to be taken care of.' Her brown fingers were tightly clasped as they rested on the cab doors. "'All her life she has wanted to be taken care of, and all her life she has been thrown back upon herself. When I was little, I had her, but when she was little, she had no one.' Her mother died when I was born. 
Something in the simple pathos of this statement stirred Gore's ever-present sense of the sacredness of home ties. "'I never knew that,' he said very quietly. "'Yes, our mother died when I was born, and Chloe grew up in our father's care. "'Did she ever tell you about our father?' "'No, at least. Then I shall. I've told Pierce. People ought to know. It helps them to understand.' "'Our father was a spendthrift, a gambler, a man without any principles. "'If somebody stronger than himself had taken him in hand when he was young, "'things might have been different. "'But he began by ruling everybody who came in contact with him, "'until at last nobody dared to rule him. "'Can you imagine how a man like that would bring up a daughter, "'you who had a mother to help you in every year of your life?' "'Her blue eyes darkened with intensity.' Our home in Ireland is a big, lonely house on the sea-coast. Imagine growing up in a house like that, without care or money or friends, for father drove all his friends away. Imagine Chloe's life. Her only learning was what she got with our cousin from the schoolmaster of the nearest village. Her only amusements were sailing and riding and fishing. She never had the love or friendship of a woman of her own class. She never knew what it was to be without the dread of debt or disgrace. And then, at eighteen, she married the first man who came into her life. Not because she liked him, not because she wanted to marry or knew what marrying was, but because he had saved our father's honour by paying his debt. She paused to take breath, but before Gore could speak she went on again. Do you know what I always wonder, Walter, when I think of Clodagh? Gore made a low murmur. I wonder, considering everything, that she hasn't done really wrong things, instead of just terribly foolish ones. It doesn't seem strange to me that she should have behaved like a child when she first felt what it was to be free and flattered and admired. Listen, Walter, there have been too many clouds between you and Clodagh. Neither of you has understood. You have been too proud, and she has been too much afraid. But I am not afraid. And in the prosaic London cab, with her eyes fixed resolutely on the heavy copper-coloured sky that hung above the housetops, Nance performed her second act of love. While Gore sat silent, she poured forth the whole mistaken tale of Clodagh's life, from the days in Venice to the hour of her departure for Ireland. She omitted nothing, she extenuated nothing. With a strange instinct towards choice of the right weapons, she fought for her sister's future. Everything was told. Lady Frances Hope's poisoning of Clodagh's mind against Gore himself, the scene with Serico in the card-room, all the temptations, all the follies, confessed in the darkness of the nights at Tufnell and in Clodagh's own bedroom on the night she visited Deerhurst. It was the moment for speech, and she spoke. Her own shyness, her own natural reticence, was swept aside by the great need of one who was infinitely dear. The scene at Carlton House Terrace was described without flinching, for candour and innocence move boldly where lesser virtues fail and falter. She told the story with a simple truth that was more dignified than any hesitancy. When at last she had finished, Gore sat up for a space, very silent and with bent head. Then abruptly, as if inspired by a sudden resolution, he put up his hand to the trap in the roof. "'The nearest telegraph office!' he called as the cabman looked down. The man whipped up his horse, but Nance turned sharply. "'What are you going to do? To wire to Clodagh?' "'To Clodagh?' "'Yes.' 
"'But Clodagh doesn't know. Walter, you haven't told Clodagh. Walter!' Gore bent his head. "'I wrote to her the night I saw Francis Hope,' he said. "'She had my letter this morning.' "'This morning?' It was impossible to fathom the pain and alarm in Nancy's voice. "'What did you write?' "'Very little. Just that I knew about Deerhurst, that I thought it better we should not marry.' "'And she got that letter this morning. She's been hours and hours alone, believing that you don't love her, that she's left utterly by herself. Oh!' "'Nance, don't. I'm sufficiently ashamed.' Nance put her hands over her eyes. "'I'm not thinking of you,' she said cruelly. "'I know.' "'But remember, there's the wire. We can still wire. I shall tell her that you and I are coming for her to Ireland, that she will never be alone again.' Nancy's hand dropped. "'But you don't understand,' she cried. "'No telegram can reach her to-night. It would only get to Carrigmore to-morrow morning, and from there to Oristown. If we were to give everything we have in the world, if we were to die for it, we could not save her from the blackness, the loneliness and horror of to-night.'" End of Part 4 Chapter 19